Finding Ideas to Change the World, the podcast of the Socialist Workers' Party. Each week we'll be bringing you original content and analysis of the social, economic and cultural questions facing the world today. Welcome to the Ideas to Change the World podcast. My name is Simon Asaf. Uh, we are here today to talk about the Turkish war on the Kurds, uh, notably in northern Syria, and also address some of the wider questions about uh, Kurdish liberation and the state they find themselves in. We have with us Anne Alexander, who is on the editorial board of the International Socialism Journal. She is an author of numerous works on Egypt, Iraq and the Middle East. Uh, with us also is Umit Yildiz, who is a Kurdish revolutionary socialist based in the UK. Umit, can I turn to you first? The Turkish invasion is being seen very much as a betrayal of the Kurds by the West. The Kurds we know uh, in northern Syria had been fighting ISIS and seen very much as heroes to the West and, and, and many people on the left. Um, and then they seem to have been thrown to the walls by the US government. Uh, could you tell us just very quickly the, the, the background to this and the situation the Kurds find themselves in? Thank you. Uh, I think it has more uh, multi-dimensional aspects of this uh, situation. It's not us. Uh, it seems to be uh, what has been uh, portrayed in the media. I think it goes back to a uh, historical uh, background, which we can talk later on, but it's an immediate situation. I think we need to talk about the end of the peace process in Turkey, which began in 2013 and between 2013 and 15, between the Turkish government, which is the current AKP uh, party, which Erdogan's uh, political party, and the Kurdish uh, movement in Turkey, the main political organization they have, HDP, People's Democratic Party. In 2015 elections, for presidential elections, was a turning point for the uh, current Turkish government's attack on uh, Kurdish movement because of Erdogan's desire to be president and Kurdish movement's desire to say we will not make you president. Following this, uh, situation in Syria and refugee crisis and uh, about 4 million refugees m- moving from uh, northern Syria into Turkey and uh, current AKP government's use of refugees also escalated the situation. Mm-hmm. And one important issue I think we can discuss later on, but I'd like to mention first the whole Turkish state's attack on Kurds because seeing Kurds as an existential uh, issue. And the operation, what they call it right now, which the last 10 days they have been uh, operating in northern Syria, is, is Operation Peace Stream. I think it is a joke uh-huh. to call them Operation Peace Stream. But currently there is a ceasefire. Turks don't call it ceasefire. We just stop uh, our operation. But uh, American government called it ceasefire. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll uh, stop there. So can okay, and clearly um, the, 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 the Turkish attack has kind of wider implications um, for uh, imperialism in the region, the kind of rebalancing of power, and so on. I wonder if you can uh, ex- just explain as briefly as possible the, the kind of enormity of the situation as it's unfolding. Um, I think, firstly, um, we need to kind of put this in the context of some of the uh, things that have been happening around that area of northern Syria, the borders with 
Turkey over the last few the over over the last few years, um, and to underline the enormity of the attack on millions of people's lives that this uh, invasion by Turkish forces represents, and there are there are two kind of key uh, groups of people who are under threat from this. One, of course, is the people in northern Syria, in Rojava, in the area that has been uh, uh, an autonomous Kurdish territory um, over the last few years. As we'll come on to, one of the um, uh, problems of the, the way in which the Rojava, um, as, a, uh, Rojava as, an, as an autonomous area has come into being is that um, that has involved uh, the armed, Kurdish armed forces in the region working with the US imperialist forces in order to fight ISIS um, and, and you know, working very directly with them uh, in, in that battle. Um, but the, what, we've seen on, what we've, we're seeing unfolding with the Turkish invasion is, of course, um, everyone who lives in that, in that area then are under threat from that, uh, that, that invasion and thousands of people fleeing the, fleeing the area. So um, there, is the, there is the threat to the Kurdish and other, po uh, uh, other populations who live in um, the area of, uh, the area of Rojava um, from the Turkish invasion. On the other hand, there is also a huge threat to uh, the millions of Syrian refugees living in Turkey who are now being told that, that two million of them will be forced to move into this so-called safe zone that the Turkish uh, military invasion is, is creating. Again, this is forced uh, dispossession of people who have been systematically brutalised by the experience of counter-revolution, civil war, um, marginalisation and racism inside Turkish, inside Turkish society and, and, uh, and in, in enormous poverty as well, um, and are now being told that they will be forcibly moved to areas um, which are being apparently constructed kind of by the to, uh, mm -hmm. by the Turkish state. Um, this is uh, the, both of these things are uh, utter tragedies and a huge attack on uh, on, on the rights of uh, of millions of people, mm -hmm. and something that we should completely and totally and totally oppose. Um, in terms of the wider issue about how this fits into what the if you like the dynamics of imperialist com competition in the region. I think that's also important. I mentioned, um, and obviously this is something that has been very much at the forefront of the coverage of um, you know, the, the crisis in northern Syria in the Western media, uh, the fact that Kurdish forces have been part of a coalition that has uh, been working with the, with, with the US in order to uh, fight against ISIS, in, uh, particularly in the operations around Raqqa, um, but also in, 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 in other areas. Um, that's only a small portion of the military and the kind of geopolitical competition that has been playing out around the Syrian um, uh, civil war, counter-revolution and, uh, uh, and the pr prior to that the, rev the, the revolution that began in, 2000, in 2011. And I think there's two levels at which you need to see this picture unfolding. First is actually the role of the great powers. So you have uh, the US, um, uh, obviously under, un, under Trump, um, you know, most, most recently, but the kind of long-term effects of, of, of US policy of attempting to uh, assert itself over the Middle East and to dominate the, the resources of the region um, 
But then you also actually have what you could call a kind of sub-imperial level of, uh, mm-hmm. of competition or a level of imperialist, a kind of dynamic of imperialist competition that is playing its way out between the uh, regional powers, of which one is Turkey. So Turkey projecting itself into militarily invading northern Syria is part of a dynamic of competition between some of the strongest states of the region who are not, at the, if you could see it as a kind of multi-level phenomenon, they're not at the top level of imperialist competition mm-hmm. like the US uh, uh, and so on, but they are states that are able to um, project themselves beyond their borders, that they are trying to, um, you know, grab markets, grab resources, uh, you know, act in a way that means that they are competing at a regional level in a way that is is driven by uh, the dynamics of imperialism. The other states that are particularly important at the moment at that level are Iran, which obviously when we come to talk about um, what's happened in Syria, the role of Iran as, a, uh, a, a, as an external force in Syrian politics and in Iraq is very important. Um, and then, you know, the other, other countries that are less directly involved in this conflict in, um, uh, in Syria would be Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, um, you actually need to look at the role of Israel from the south. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Kurds have a saying, don't they? We have no friends but the mountains. And it seems the history of the Kurds is one of revolt and betrayal. Um, of course, the, the Kurds, as with the Palestinians, were the big losers in the, in the Sykes-Picot arrangement, the deal that redivised the Middle East after the First World War. And the Kurds are spread across four countries. Is that correct? Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Um, how much of this history uh, is ha- how much of it has shaped the way in which the Kurdish uh, resistance has evolved over the, over the past few years? Now, as you said, the Kurds have been betrayed. But is it betrayal or is the imperialist games less uh, how we can uh, portray it? I mean, as you said, it's dividing the four countries and after 1919 and creation of Turkish uh, Republic, which came out from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire in 1923, uh, biggest chunk of Kurdistan went to Turkey. And in one night, as the people find themselves in different countries, Kurds find themselves find, uh, in Turkish, Syrian, Iraqi, and Iranian. Since then, in Turkey, for example, Kurds are called mountain from Turks. In Syria and Iraq, uh, Arabs from Yemen, and uh, Iran is also because of the similarity with the language, Iranian thought this is an alter ego. Uh-huh. So, uh, so the Kurds, their existence have been denied mm. last hundred years. Although before that, it was Kurds always controlled their own areas and historically mm-hmm. they have been in the area between Tigris and uh, Euphrates and Mesopotamia. They, uh, they had a very rich history. Which econo- uh, both literal uh, written in written and uh, oral history, but it has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. And as for Turkey, if we look at the Turkey, uh, why the big problem is that why the Turkish ruling class, Turkish state, sees Kurds as an existential problem goes back to 1923, the founding uh, rules of Turkish Republic. Uh, which Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who was the founder of Turkey, which is so-called modern Turkey, 
he identified as one state, Turkish state, one nation, Turkish nation, one flag, Turkish flag, and one language mm. that is Turkish. Until recently, until 1991, speaking Kurdish was illegal in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Even using the term Kurd would have been a uh, excuse to ban a publication. Mm -hmm. And uh, recently, is he using uh, Kurdish names and again uh, has been attacked by the states and in the schools, for example, uh, there are signs, some schools says, I will not speak Kurdish mm. in Kurdish-dominated areas, or a mother tongue, speaking of mother tongue, I will not use Kurdish uh, language in classrooms. And two people last week, since the operation started, two people were murdered because of they were speaking in Kurdish mm. publicly. And it is... Uh, one way is uh, uh, the Turkish ruling class thinks that Kurdish existence is a problem for Turkey. Its reason is the movements in Syria, movements in Iraq, and also uh, Iran, which everybody knows. Uh, the autonomous Kurdish areas in both in Syria and Iraq would trigger the situation in Turkey. Mm. And Turkish Kurds, which we are talking about 25 million, maybe more than 25 million, we don't know exactly know mm -hmm. how many uh, Kurds in Turkey. And that, uh, because of uh, years of ethnic oppression, uh, it will trigger Kurds to demand their own country, which means the destruction of four countries. Mm. It will also create, it will also make impact on the big imperialist uh, countries because uh, like Russia and America and European Union, they would not like destabilized Middle East because of its uh, oil and other uh, uh, factors. Um, and one of the um, one of the places that seems a success for the Kurds are the Kurds in Iraq. They've had a self, well, kind of self-controlled area since the 2003 invasion. Um, is it successful? Is it autonomous? What's the, what was the impact of the Kurds, uh, uh, what was the outcome, if you like, uh, for the Kurds of the Iraq war and the subsequent uh, de degeneration or disintegration of Iraq? I guess it depends successful for whom. Is it a success for Masoud Barzani and the leadership of the Kurdistan Democratic Party who benefited from this process and uh, one of the main groups of people running the uh, Kurdish, Iraqi Kurdistan, yes, to a certain extent, it's given them a, a degree of autonomy from the main Iraqi state, um, but it's been achieved at the expense of being a client of the uh, of US imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of whether it's success, success for ordinary people in Iraqi Kurdistan, who actually suffer from many of the same issues in terms of social inequality and injustice, um, and you know, and poverty that people across Iraq are, uh, are suffering from at the moment, and that's been one of the big triggers for the huge wave of protests um, against the corruption and uh, of the Iraqi government in the last in the last few weeks. Um, then you know, Iraqi Kurdistan doesn't really represent some uh, something that's a success. I think it's really important to kind of to put that history into into a longer context because. Um, 
as Umit was saying, there is a long, very long history of Kurdish struggle where Kurdish, the Kurdish movement has moved between um, sometimes trying to play the polit- geopolitics of the region, working with, sometimes with one of the local states that is not the state in which that movement is based, if you see what I mean. So if the, you know, the, so the Kurdish, Kur- Kurdish movement that was operating, for example, a guerrilla struggle in Iraqi Kurdistan would do that from inside Iran if Iran was opposed to, was in, was opposed to Iraq. Or, in fact, actually the history of the PKK and, um, fighting the Turkish state and using Syria as a hinterland and working to a certain extent or you know being uh, allowed to do so by the Syrian regime uh, because of uh, hostility at various points between the Syrian regime and the um, and, and the Kurd- and the Turkish state and then there's also the question of working directly with some of the major imperialist powers at the time of huge of the of major imperialist intervention into the region so particularly kind of around the Disaster that unfolded with Iraq. Um, so, although you mentioned you mentioned quite rightly that the sort of uh, the the point at which Iraqi Kurdistan became most you know uh, most autonomous is post two thousand and three. Actually, from during the ni- during the nineteen nineties, even before even under the sanctions regime, um, as a result of the no fly zone that was uh, that was imposed by the by the US. Um, Kurdish, uh, the Kurdish areas were largely under Kurdish control and functioned outside of the control of, of Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has been, you know, the, the, there has been a Kurdish autonomous uh, state-like thing in in northern mm-hmm. in northern, northern Iraq for many decades. And we have to put that in the context, though, of a much longer history, both of um, ethnic cleansing and racism directed against the Kurd, against the Kurds, Iraqi Kurds, by um, uh, the the Iraqi state, actually with the collusion of the imperialist powers. Mm. So people, you know, may not be aware of enormity of the crimes that were committed by the Ba'athist regime and Saddam's regime in uh, against against the Kurds, such as the the, the gas attack on on Halabja, uh, which is in. Uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan, where thousands of people were killed, and you know, this was at a point before Saddam Hussein and his regime were enemy number one of the uh, uh, of the U.S. It was a point when actually Saddam Hussein was the ally of the U.S. in the fight against Iran, um, and this is one of the reasons why the ethnic cleansing operations known as the Anfal um, were allowed to go ahead with, with without a, a peep of protest by the by the U.S. Um, and atrocities could be committed against uh, uh, thousands of, uh, 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 of Kurdish people in the 19, in the 1980s because Saddam's support uh, supporting Saddam Hussein's regime in the battle with Iran was seen as more important, more mm-hmm. beneficial to U.S. Mm-hmm. interests. Um, there is, however, also I would say a different um, history of. Kurdish struggle in Iraq and in other countries in the region of being interwoven with struggle from below to build mass movements, revolutionary movements that challenged those states in a much more fundamental way that were anti-colonial but at the same time opposed to the states that uh, uh, that, that you know that, that were in power locally and this is quite important so if you look at for example the history of the communist movement in uh, all of those countries Kurds have often played a huge role mm. in Syria in uh, in in Iraq um, 
you know, actually playing leading leading fi- leading figures in uh, in the left and in, in communist in communist movements. Also, even those where you were talking about Kurdish nationalist movements um, or movements that focus largely on organising um, for Kurdish liberation, they did so. There's a, there's a history of that happening as part of a wider struggle against the local against the local states from from below and, and seeing themselves part of a broader revolutionary movement for change from below, as opposed to trying to um, move around between different local and regional powers. It's a bit like actually you could draw a, a parallel with the experience of the Palestinian movement mm. um, that. The armed struggle um, that was carried out by Palestinian uh, by the Palestinian movement in from the 19, late 1950s onwards into the 60s, 70s, uh, and into the 80s, there were kind of two approaches to this. One of which was similar to what I outlined with the Kurds, where essentially the leadership of these movements, people like Yasser Arafat, who's the leader of Fatah, and and some of the other movements that came after, saw themselves as trying to make alliances with other states in the region. They saw themselves as the as the embryo of a Palestinian state um, and that therefore they needed to act in you know with the support of other governments and this was partly to do with the nature of the thing that they were doing they needed bases they needed arms they needed mm. places to put their radio stations they needed a whole infrastructure of support but this led to them becoming prisoners of it in many sense both mm. politically and sometimes almost literally of repressive states in the region they have a poli- they had a policy of non-interference in the struggles of those countries you know so that it, classically in the case of uh, of the uh, of events in Jordan in 1970 with black september it was a policy that the, Palest- the palestinian movement would stand aside from the struggle inside jordanian mm. society against the monarchy um, and that you could argue there's a very similar kind of process with the Kurdish with the Kurdish movement, where privileging a way of seeing liberation as being as, as being achieved through a combination of armed struggle and alliances with other states in the region playing off one state against each other leads you down this route, which I think is a trap. Now, I should say at this point, it is very important to say that, you know, as a socialist, I am totally in favour of and support Kurdish people's right to bear arms and to fight for national liberation. This is not a critique from a kind of pacifist perspective of saying people shouldn't take up arms and struggle for, and struggle for, for, for the right to uh, self-determination. But the problem of doing that within the framework of the existing states in the region and not challenging, you know, those those states as well as the uh, imperialist powers, actually leads you down this route, and it means that you can't solve these problems. The points that uh, Umit very rightly made of, in order for Kurdistan to come into being, you have to break apart four existing states of the mm-hmm. region, and that means that or, or you end up with four separate Kurd. Kurdistan, which is actually, you know, where where the thing ends up going. Hmm. Um, of course, it's, um, the Rehova was seen very much as one of the successes that came out of this, the Syrian um, revolution. And when the uh, Kurdish movement um, then encounters, if you like, the Arab Spring, uh, we have in Syria because being very, very much a, a big part of the uprising of two thousand and eleven. Um, and the areas that then kind of emerged or fell under the uh, under the influence of the of the kind of Kurdish uh, leftist parties, these are the areas now being destroyed by by uh, by, by the Turks. But do you feel Amit, that this was a chance, if you like, of uh, the 2011 revolutions to kind of redefine that relationship between 
the kind of Kurdish national movement, the wider revolutionary forces. Um, Before I answer that one, I was mentioned something I think is really important about imperialist powers and their role in the Middle East. But let's not forget that first country who bombed and gassed Kurds was British. Mm. And Winston Churchill ordered uh, gassing people uh, in Kirkuk and Mosul, the areas where when they discovered, when Britain discovered oil was there. So in order to make it inhabited, so this, um, this barbarian, we need to get rid of them. But I think as a Arab revolution was a turning point for the Kurdish movement because there was a big chance for both Kurds, Arabs, and they work together and fight for a better, uh, uh, liber- liberated Syria and maybe would have moved on to Iraq as well. But there were movements uh, were calling for, amongst Kurds and Arabs, brotherhood and uh, fighting back. But later on, I think this uh, has been dismantled mm. by fighting against ISIS and intervention of the other imperialist, local imperial minor imperialists in the Middle East like Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the major imperialists like Russia uh, and USA. I do think it has been, there was an opportunity, but it has been destroyed recently. Because mm. mm. um, that, if you like, and comes to the, that kind of special relationship, if you like, of at what point uh, movement national liberation becomes part of a wider movement for change and, and that relationship between the two. I remember at the time, um, quite a few people on the Syrian revolutionary left um, were confronting the question of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, self autonomy or some kind of uh, some some kind of state for the Kurds as being against the interests of the Syrian revolution. That um, that 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 this was a diversion, if you like. So uh, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that relationship between what point a national liberation movement can be part of a wider one. And um, what what was missed, in my opinion, uh, during the Syrian uprising was the Syrian, the Syrian Arabs saying to the Kurds, join our revolution um, and we'll promise you independence if you so wish. Um, but that didn't happen. So I wonder, that relationship is, is quite a complex one, isn't it, between the national liberation and revolutionary movements themselves? Well, yeah, I think it's... Um, it's very important to emphasize the history again of state racism and oppression faced by Kurds within the borders of, of, of the Syrian Republic. Um, even though it w- perhaps it was, um, which is not to minimize it, it wasn't on the level of uh, really kind of genocidal madness that some of the uh, Saddam Hussein's regime got up to in Iraq. It was very, Kurds then faced very systematic repression, Uh, Kurdish movements were unable to operate, Um, they were marginalised and excluded, Um, and also there were programmes of um, so-called Arabization, of bringing in people from other areas of the country, and and the regime from time to time, you know, played on a kind of Arab played on racism and, uh, 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 and fermented divisions um, between ordinary Syrians and whether they were whether they were um, Kurdish or Arab background um, and so actually if you look at the precursors to the um, Syrian uprising in 2011 there was an important movement in Hasaka and the areas that are you know are labeled as Rojava those those areas <laughs> 
Kamishli, for example, mm. as a major city, um, was the site of uh, a, a, a major protests in the decade before by by, by local people um, against the repression by the Syrian state by Kurdish people, and um, if you look at the that that took place in the 2000s before the um, uprising in uh, in, twen- in 2011 and was was brutally repressed if you look at the history of the um the PYD the big the, the major um, uh, kurdish organization in rojava then it was founded in the context of that of that movement in uh, in in uh, in, in and in, in Hasaka in the mid 2000s um, and so yes i think that when you have a, you have a kind of dialectic between different sorts of, uh, of oppression playing off against each other. And that what revolution does is it gives an opportunity for, as you say, people who are on the one side, you know, maybe are being appealed to by the state in order to back up this kind of racist idea, in order to divide them. Um, so in this case, uh, people from an Arab, uh, Arab background in, in, in Syria... So revolution in the con- in that context gives um, an opportunity to turn that division on its head and to fight for unity among the among people who are oppressed um, and among the exploited against the state. On precisely that that kind of uh, appeal, we're saying we urge you to support our revolution. Uh, it's your revolution too. But we totally support your right to self-determination. Yeah. Unless you make that kind of appeal um, and, and say you know, to people who are engaged in the national, national liberation struggle that we are with you, including up until the breakup of this state which has oppressed you, because it's not really our state, it's a state yeah. of our ruling class. We don't have any interest in it. It's a bit like... You know, it's like why, as a revolutionary socialist in in England, I'm totally in favour of of Scotland. If people want to be an independent part of an independent Scotland, they should be, and I'm totally you know in in favour of the breakup of the British state. Obviously, we're not in the middle of a revolution in in the UK at the moment in Britain, um, but I think it's a very relevant it's a very relevant question because, although for a number of reasons, one is because you have to undo that ideological, um, you know, you have to take that ideological weapon out of the hands of the old ruling class and the old state and not, and and build unity among people who are are oppressed on a basis of mutual solidarity. Um, You you have to do something about that because otherwise exactly what happens, which is the case of what happens in in Syria during the counter-revolution, and ha- happens in all in, in, in all counter-revolutionary situations is that the uh, the ruling class divides the oppressed against each other mm. and will play on whether it's supposedly ethnic divisions between Arabs and Kurds or whether it's sectarian mm. divisions. And this is, of course, one of the major weapons of the of the Syrian regime in the counter-revolution was a kind of, was around sect- sect- sectarianism. Um, but I think it absolutely has to start from um, a recognition of the oppression that was, has been suffered by Kurdish people by the Syrian state, mm-hmm. um, but also trying to forge a, a, a common platform of, a, 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 of, sol- of solidarity. Um, and it's a tragedy that that didn't happen very effectively in the mm-hmm. Syrian in the context of the Syrian revolution. Although, I mean, you know, maybe there's something you could say a bit more about 
to what extent demands around Kurdish self-determination were you know, taken up at all by Syrian revolutionaries? Yeah, unfortunately, not, not very many. It was uh, when the Syrian revolution breaks out, it breaks out in a, in a almost kind of vacuum of politics. Um, a lot of the committees that appear um, sort of rejected politics for some of the some of the wider questions. But I think it was because of the state, you know, the just the, the way the revolution seemed to come out of nowhere, the way in which they, uh, if you compare it to the Tunisian or the Egyptian revolutions, where there was a you know a good established uh, uh, sort of revolutionary groups or movement in Syria, really came out of the blue. Uh, and, and there seemed very little time to discuss that, but it seemed a really difficult, a really difficult uh, question, and, and one that had various arguments, uh, you know, with with the left generally. I mean, uh, and I think almost that, that kind of leads me on to, kind of, if if you like, the next question. If we if if we understand, as Anne has said, that the kind of interests of the kind of majority oppressed, if you like, the Arabs in Syria, in, in this case, is to embrace the demands of the Kurdish people in order to win them over. How much so is this for the Turkish working class? Is it a demand? Should it be a demand of the Turkish working class that there is an independent Kurdistan? Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, what, why would that be important for uh, any kind of rising revolution movement in Turkey to take on this question and take on I think one of the problems in Turkey is that trade unions have been very weak in Turkey and the working class, although there has been struggled for the better conditions and pay, uh, wage struggle in Turkey, the trade unions have been really divided and uh, smashed since 1980s uh, military coup. And the Turkish working class, if we look at it, is, is a big sport for the war in Syria mm. is what, what I have been observing. There's a, in the parliament, for example, the ruling classes, all the major parties except Kurdish, uh, uh, pro-Kurdish party HDP, main parties such as CHP, People's uh, uh, Democratic Party, uh, and uh, AKP and MHP, which is the fascist party, National Movement Party, they were all united behind is uh, invasion and amongst working class there is no movement even if there is a movement the Turkish government at the moment is so oppressive mm -hmm. any kind of opposition to war has is facing uh, severe attack mm -hmm. which people have been put in prison just because of uh, tweeting about peace or this war is uh, illegal so as a Turkish working class has interest if uh, Kurdish working class has their freedom because there is a, their interest, both Kurdish and Turkish class, their the working class interests are the same because in factories no one divides each other as so I am Kurd or Turk because when the bosses come they strike. Like what happened in the recent, there is a strike in a metal uh, factory it's a thousands of uh, metal workers, unofficially strong, and won their right, despite that their union was a right-wing union. Mm. And amongst them, there were Turks, there were Kurds, and refugees. And there was a really good recent example which happened in Kayseri. Kayseri, the center of Turkey, is a very conservative town mm. where I was born, actually, <laughs> uh, as a migrant family from East, what people call. Is there, 
in a, a textile factory, Syrian refugees and Turkish workers, mm. they went on strike together. Mm. It was about hundreds of them. Is they went on strike and they campaigned together. That is, there was a hope, mm. hope even though there's a huge racism in Turkey against Syrians and against uh, anyone who's immigrant, because they know that there are. Uh, not just Syrian immigrants in Turkey, but there are immigrants from other countries. Mm. We are talking about over 100,000 people from uh, some Afri- African countries and Afghanistan. Mm. And there's a detention camps in, uh, in Kurdistan, which is in the east, where the people are living in really uh, terrible conditions, and most of them are from Afghanistan or uh, other countries. I mean, unity between Turkish and Kurdish working class is in their benefit. Mm. But unfortunately, at the moment, that, that division, the nationalist uh, division uh, played by the state is uh, not allowing workers to unite together and its, uh, trade unions are not strong enough to fight back and demand for peace mm. in Turkey, except one major union, uh, which is a, a small but major union, which is the DISC, the Revolutionary uh, Workers' Confederation. Other trade unions are not campaigning against war. Mm. So there is a, a problem amongst the working class uh, activity and the lack of uh, uh, strikes and the lack of uh, understanding of the, who's the real enemy mm. amongst the Turkish uh, working classes that dividing the Kurdish, Kurdish uh, independence. I guess one of the things we can say about kind of the Kurdish struggle and all the struggles that are taking place at the moment is they're taking place in a period of quite, you know, mass revolt and revolutions. I mean, um, we, we, over the last couple of days, Lebanon's exploded in, in an uprising. We've just had a huge movement in the Sudan. Algeria, which many of us, I think, had abandoned in 2011 as being the only place where there won't be uh, a, a, an Arab revolution, has now also joined in. We're, we're living in a period of so, so of quite a uh, 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 huge potential. Um, and in Egypt, there's even been some return to the streets. It's been heavily repressed and so on. I wonder if we can sort of spend sort of the next bit just talking a little bit about the way in which revolutionary socialists can shape these struggles and shape our understanding not only of struggles against the regimes in the region, but also how we take on some of the national questions, questions of Palestinians, questions of, of, of the Kurds, and, and, and various others. Is there, is there a chance that the kind of return of the Arab revolutions will rearrange and undo everything that's taken place over the last, well, uh, over the last uh, few decades? I think, one, I think first thing is, um, I know you're not meaning the label Arab in this way, but it's not, it's not, an Arab, it's not a question about Arab revolution, it's a question about revolution. Um, I mean, I'm, I, 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 this came, became was quite an important argument in Sudan, where mm-hmm. there is clearly a relationship between the um, experience of 2011 and the way in which that impacted on how people were trying to organise against the al-Bashir dictatorship in, um, in, in Sudan and the inspiration that it gave but also why it took for several years longer for that kind of uh, experience model of kind of a, pop- a popular uprising driven from below to explode in, in, in Sudan but because again the, the history of uh, Arab racism being used by the state mm-hmm. against 
uh, people who are not of an Arab background, not Arabic speaking, not from Arab, Arab ethnically, whatever that might mean, who are from communities further south in Sudan, who have and who are not Muslim, um, the, the the label Arab Revolution is as a bit can be is quite problematic in 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 that context. And I think it'd be similar to say, fair to say that similarly also in relation to. Uh, Kurdish question, or in fact, in relation to Iran, um, where you've got you have similar sets of contradictions within the Iranian within Iranian society, um, which in you know in two thousand and nine, for example, erupted into massive protests around the elections and the results of the the results of the elections, um, but but could also at some point. Turn into a kind of movement from uh, uh, from below. So I think the the prospects for that is uh, are actually uh, you know are still very very significant and very important in a number of different countries in the region. You also have had say if you take again north if you take North Africa, um, you've had mass movements in uh, countries like Mor- Morocco of um, well, struggles by public sector workers like junior doctors and teachers organising themselves to demand um, a better pay and conditions and so on, and, and coming up against the, coming up against the state in quite dramatic ways. You've had a huge uh, strike by uh, teachers in Jordan. You've also had a tax revolt in Jordan, and now, as you said, you have. Um, uprising exploding all over Lebanon um, and just a few weeks ago you had mass spontaneous protests against corruption across Iraq although again there's a longer history of that. I think the key question here though is as you're saying what kind of organisation is needed to turn protests and eruptions of anger and frustration into something that really challenges the, 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 the system as a whole that not only gives vent to people's uh, anger in a temporary sense um, and maybe with some short-lived concessions. I mean, the, you know, in the case of Lebanon, the initial, uh, there were perhaps two initial sparks. There was the question of uh, people's reaction to the wildfires that were raging, actually. Mm. I think that's quite important. But also there's the question of the, what's, the tax on WhatsApp, voice calls, taxes on um, uh, on petrol, taxes on tobacco. Some of those have been reversed. They've reversed the WhatsApp thing. Um, but you know, if you want to go beyond kind of short-term, uh, short-term, uh, immediate questions to the whole structure of the state and its relationship um, to imperialism, you have to have revolutionary organisation. I mean, Omit mentioned the question about trade unions. Um, Lenin, Russian revolutionary Lenin, at the beginning of the twentieth century, had a very uh, you know apposite way of of talking about what's the difference between a revolutionary socialist and somebody who is a good trade union activist. He said, a revolutionary socialist has to be a tribune of the oppressed and not simply a trade union secretary. I mean, of course, you can be a trade union secretary who is also a revolutionary socialist and a tribune of the oppressed, but trade unions as them, in themselves are reformist organisations. They accept lots of the divisions in society. They accept the existence of the, uh, you know, the current states and their setup, and they are, are there to kind of bargain for better, a better deal for workers, but they don't in and of themselves take up those questions about oppression. If you're a revolutionary socialist, you have to do that. And in fact, you have to do the kind of thing that Umit was laying out, you know, is 
is possible and can come out of the experience of workers themselves. And this is crucial. It's not something that's dreamed up by people sitting in, you know, in the top rooms, in smoky rooms, in pubs or in, in, in middle class drawing rooms or whatever, um, where people imagine revolutionary theory gets thrashed out. It actually comes from the day to day lived experience of the, the working class is is divided in a certain sense by being drawn from all different areas of the country, all different languages, all different places, um, and is is composed of people who have nothing nothing in common um, but the fact that they are all workers, and that if you are uh, if you're a revolutionary socialist, you can you can work with people who are experiencing that on the picket line, who are experiencing the way in which the state doesn't distinguish when the policeman's baton is crashing down on your head. They're not actually asking, are you Kurdish or are you Arab or are you Turkish or whatever. Um, they seeing you as a <coughs> seeing you as a worker and uh, 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 and you're facing you're facing repression. And then, but then it, you cannot just rely on that spontaneous experience of solidarity and struggle it has to be organized because you have to fight back against the way in which the state uses this as a weapon to divide our side you cannot co you cannot combat the ideology of racism without a counter uh, without an organization that is constant that is consciously countering it and that calls for revolutionary organization uh, something that takes up questions of oppression systematically and sometimes in a very unpopular way that it's not always popular with your fellow workers to go to say um, you know if you're say if you're Turkish to say I stand with the Turkey with the with the, Kur with the, the Kurdish right to self-determination I mean in the current context in Turkey it would be open you up to very very serious forms of repression thousands of people lost their jobs because they um, signed the petition in, in solidarity with the Kurdish with the peace process, or saying that the peace process with the Kurdish parties should continue. A lot of academics, for example, across Turkey, including some you know, people that I've met who are now refugees here, were thrown out of their jobs because they simply made a statement saying, I oppose the Turkish state's criminalisation of, of Kurdish rights. Um, and there will be people within the working class or you know, working in the public sector who will go along with the racism uh, yeah. that's inherent in the way the Turkish state does this. And so sometimes your job as a revolutionary is actually to stand up against that and make a clear, uh, a clear perspective as, as to why you are in solidarity with the, mm. with the oppressed. But equally, you cannot just rely on solidarity against oppression to solve the problem because it's what's located in the workplace, the power of workers at the point of production or at the point of service delivery, is something that can stop the system working. It stops capitalism functioning. There is a, there is a power that workers have to change things that then actually breaks apart the grip of those ideologies mm. on, on people's minds. Uh, and that's, it can happen in a small way in a strike, but it happens on a much, much bigger scale in revolution. I mean, it, it, it does bring you back to the question of Republic, um, which was a, a semi-autonomous area emerges out of the Syrian revolution. Uh, in other parts of Syria, are quickly kind of overwhelmed by the various Islamist organizations, ISIS and various others. Um, and Republic kind of stands out as being a place where actually the, the, that, that you can begin to see some success uh, for the revolution. But is this the case? I mean, what was, on the, what do you feel was the situation in Republic? Was it a, a model in which uh, could spread, or was it simply a, a, an island, um, uh, a small island inside a, a sea of madness? 
what I see Rojava as a an experiment. However, uh, I think we need to be critical about uh, the tactics and uh, how how PYD is organized amongst uh, inside Rojava mm -hmm. and their fight against ISIS. And there there is a it has been pictured as for some organizations or some people. Rojava is a place where the revolution is taking place. Women liberation is. Uh, it's taking place, women fighting, woman, man, woman, everybody's fighting together against ISIS. But also we have to be critical about a situation, whether it is a social movement or it is an or armed struggle against uh, ISIS. Um, what I see, there are definitely, it is a progressive area. Mm. So that is what I, I will see. Uh, however, on the other hand, is it free? Is it independent? Is it a uh, uh, place what we, we, we would call the from socialist and the revolutionary perspective? Is it a place where uh, socialism can emerge and, uh, and people from different backgrounds can live together? Um, we have to say is that during this armed struggle there has been oppressions of other groups by PYD. So I will not really while i am accepting this is a place where some kind of uh, experiments taking place but uh, working with the imperialist countries such as usa and would it make this place more uh, democratic more free and is a, is a place for a revolution mm. well I, I am skeptical skeptical about uh, rojava I mean, the, the, the U.S. Um, obviously backed the Kurds, or the Kurds fought alongside the U.S. Um, against ISIS, um, and it was very successful. And for the U.S. and for the West, here we had an image of mainly women fighters. You'd see. I mean, it's not. I know it's not the case, but you know, without the hijab, um, the, the sense in which they belong to us and part of us. And then the U.S. has simply just abandoned them. I mean, why? It seems right. Is it simply that what we have in the in the U.S. presidency is a completely unhinged man who's just done something really crazy, or is it actually uh, uh, is there a method to, to to the madness? Does the U.S. have an interest in staying in northern Syria? Um, I think the U.S. has absolutely no interest in having an independent. Kurdistan, let a, you know, at all, let alone one that was socialist or even mildly progressive, and that the unfortunately, what we've seen is yet again another betrayal of Kurdish movement by an, a, a power that has used them as cannon fodder in fighting ISIS. Um, you know, the, it was the the people who did the fighting on the ground against ISIS. Uh, were Kurdish fighters, but others as well through the Syrian, um, the SDF, and um, and so on. Um, there were very there are relatively few U.S. troops on the ground in northern Syria. There are some, um, but largely it was the U.S. was bringing its massive kind of firepower mm. to bear 
and its technology, you know, its, its technology and its remote action, while the people who were bearing the bearing the brunt of the risk and getting killed were largely uh, uh, l- largely Kurds and others who were fighting, as as I said, as cannon fodder. And we have to ask why why is the U.S. behaving like this? Why is it doing this? Why does it have this kind of hands offish attitude to what's happening in northern in northern Syria? And it's and for all that Trump is and the danger to world peace. It's actually, to be honest, I don't know that Obama would have done much different because the logic of US imperialist intervention in the region has been deeply shaped by the disaster that overtook them in Iraq. Mm. That in fact that kind of um, idea that the neoconservatives had in the early 2000s that they could that, that they were the sole superpower and they could do what they liked across the world and they could invade and remake Iraq in their own neoliberal image went to dust it came it became it was an utter disaster in terms of the numbers of u.s troops that were killed in terms of i mean this is just from the point of view of the u.s obviously it was an utter disaster from the point of view of iraq (laughs) on a much greater scale but from the point of view of the u.s ruling class what happened in iraq was a disaster it was very costly in troops in in blood and treasure and it allowed the iranian regime uh, a way back into becoming, you know, a major a major power in the region again. It was a a complete and utter disaster, and they do not, they are still scarred by that, and that's one of the major reasons why they they can't um, intervene in Syria in 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 a, in a huge way. The other reason is that Turkey is a long-standing pillar of support for the US in the region going back decades and decades it's a, it's a partner in NATO going back to the you know from from the 50s and before um, the the US has had to choose you know in this case between a minor um, a kind of minor partner somebody who was like the Kur- the Kurdish movement was useful to provide cannon fodder to deal with a particular issue in this case, taking back Raqqa and, and, uh, and temporarily, at least, uh, stopping the rise of, uh, of ISIS. But compared to the long-term relationship and the investment in that uh, from the US side of the US ruling class with the Turkish ruling class and the Turkish state, then unfortunately it doesn't, you know, it doesn't weigh up at a very pragmatic level. Mm. Um, the, the Kurds were going, uh, the Kurdish movement was going to get dumped by the US mm. at some point. Um, and and that you know that 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 is the same story essentially that has been you know written into the relationship between Kurdish movements and the big imperial powers that has been repeated time time and time again. Um, and that's I think is you know that that's a very important question that you always have to ha- have to bring uh, bring up when you're when you're talking about this. I mean. When we talk about you talk about the U.S. disaster in Iraq and the way it's shaped, it's it's like it's new Viet- Vietnam syndrome and so on. But we also see the way in which kind of regional uh, strongmen, to, to, to use that term, uh, you know, the, the emergence, reemergence of Iran, uh, 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 Turkey, and so on. Um, can we think of Turkey as the, as some people call it, the neo Ottomans? Is this the return of Turkish imperialism in a real way? Inside of the Middle East, with the uh, with the kind of withdrawal, if you like, responsibility of the U.S. and the uh, and the wider imperialism, does Turkey have an interest in rebuilding some kind of empire, even in the modern terms? I think Erdogan sees himself as the he's the uh, successor of the Ottoman Empire. He mm. sees himself, but I don't know whether the rest of the world <laughs> or the the Turkish people thinks. But however. 
invading Syria, which we are talking about 440 kilometers and 30 kilometers, 12,000 square meter land we are talking about. If Turkey is going to invade it and going to control, so what does it mean? Is it Turkey is getting smaller or bigger? Mm. Who's going to be controlling the area? So according to uh, Turkish government, Erdogan, Erdogan says he will not leave the area. He's going to stay. He's going to control. So that that is, an, in, in a way, imperialist act. And I think Turkey wouldn't, wouldn't have invaded Syria and uh, Rojava without the green light from Russia and also uh, from uh, USA. Now, USA trying to look like I am doing the peace deal, like what uh, uh, Trump said yesterday, I let the two kids fight in a school garden, now I am separating them. This is the arrogance of is the US imperialism. But on the other hand, also, Turkey has played Russia against uh, USA in this mm-hmm. situation in uh, uh, Syria. And also Turkey played refugees against European Union. Mm. And the European Union, if you look at a wider perspective, European Union's borders is now Turkey. European Union promised 6 billion euros to Turkey in order to stop Syrian refugees going through Europe. And now uh, Erdogan is saying that if you don't support my war, I'm going to let the refugees go through that. And the same thing, uh, similar stuff with Russian, Turkey bought uh, uh, missile arms from Russia, even if they were, even USA and NATO was against it. Mm. So Turkey, Erdogan thinks he is the new Sultan and he has an, Erdogan, Turkey has an interest in the Middle East, not just because of just Kurds, but also that they want to control the wider area against Iran and against Saudi Arabia, he wants to be regional power. Okay. Um, thank you very much for listening. This was Ideas uh, to Change the World podcast. I'd just like to thank Anne Alexander and uh, Umit Yildiz and my own. I'm Simon Essam. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to read more, you can find up-to-date articles at socialistworker.co.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers' Party or find out more about us, you can go to swp.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on facebook.com slash socialistworkersparty, on Twitter at swpbritain, Instagram at socialist underscore workers underscore party, and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites, including Spotify, Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker and iTunes. 